You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. White cargo is the forgotten story of the thousands of Britons who lived and died in bondage in Britain's American colonies. In the 17th and 18th centuries, more than 300,000 white people were shipped to America as slaves. Urchins were swept up from London streets to labor in the tobacco fields, where life expectancy was no more than two years. Brothels were raided to provide breeders for Virginia. Hopeful migrants were duped into signing as indentured servants, unaware they would become personal property who could be bought, sold, and even gambled away. Transported convicts were paraded for sale like livestock. Drawing on letters crying for help, diaries in court and government archives, Don Jordan and Michael Walsh demonstrate that the brutalities usually associated with black slavery alone were perpetrated on whites throughout British rule. The trade ended with American independence, but the British still tried to sell convicts in their former colonies, which prompted one of the most audacious plots in Anglo-American history. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you for episode 365 of this podcast. Yes, that's right. You can tell a friend who is looking for a podcast they can listen to every day of one whole year to listen to this podcast and listen to something fresh, something exciting, something new, something interesting. Like, for instance, the forgotten history of Britain's white slaves in America. That's something new. We haven't talked about that, at least not in any depth, I don't think. But a couple of quick highlights about this book. First of all, it's interesting to look at the reviews at goodreads.com and to see people trying to figure out what they should make of this book. It's really somewhat entertaining. There is definitely a concern on the part of the anti-racist crowd, as I perceive them to be, that this story, this book, steals attention from the victimhood of black African slaves. If we're talking about white people being treated poorly as well, maybe even before black Africans were imported into the colonies en masse as slave labor, if it turns out that white people were dispensed with in exactly the same ways before black Africans were treated in such ways. Well, then it could potentially maybe sort of kind of undermine the narrative that all white people are either totally against black people, totally for treating them like animals, dehumanizing them, exploiting them, uh, or else the white people that are okay are anti-racists. Right, but that's a very that's a very unfortunate dichotomy. Uh, let me just say that I think it's not only possible to be opposed to racism and 
the abuse of human beings, regardless of their skin color, without being an anti-racist. I think, in fact, that's the only way you can consistently be against racism. Let me say that again. I think the only way you can consistently be against racism is if you are also not an anti-racist, because very often the anti-racist crowd is racist. Uh, they, they cloak their own racism, their own biases against and for people based on their skin color in this supposed crusade for racial justice, racial equality. But be careful about that. Be really, really careful about that. If treating some people badly once upon a time was excused for centuries because of the color of their skin on no other facts alone than the color of their skin, we should consider that that does still happen today. Also, that it sometimes takes curious forms. Like, for instance, if you conclude that all white people are inherently racist, that all Americans have racism in their DNA, if you conclude that there is no other option but to be an anti-racist or a racist, well, then I think you're probably a racist. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say that up front. Now, I read this story, and I take it with a grain of salt because, admittedly, I've heard references to indentured servitude in the early days of the American colonies prior to the War for Independence, but I haven't ever really studied them in depth. Now, one concerning element I'll give you as just a heads up, if you're thinking about checking this book out, giving it a read, According to one reviewer on goodreads.com, there are a lot of citations of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States as their source. So be careful with that. Be careful with that because Howard Zinn is toxic. You know, he, he, he had an agenda very much. We'll say that. He was an activist for Marxism, for communism. He really was. Uh, that was where his loyalties resided, uh, admittedly so. And so he painted all of American history as nothing more than a tale of oppressed and op oppressors and basically set up the pre-1619 project narrative that America's founding really was all about rich white people from the old world, from Europe, wanting to come over here and exploit poor white people, black Africans, women, Native Americans, Chinese. Yeah, it, There is definitely more to the story. Can that be in the mix? Yes. But should we be very, very careful in relying on Howard Zinn as a source. Uh, yeah, to, to put it mildly, I'm, I'm trying to be understated here, but yeah, I, w I, would not, I would not cite Howard Zinn, except if I were trying to make the case 
that radical leftists really do believe these crazy things that I say they believe. I would quote Howard Zinn, but we don't have time for that today, quite frankly. Another note. I may or may not have said in our last episode that Michael Walsh is one of the authors of this book and that I have read a few other books by Michael Walsh. I don't remember if I mentioned that on the podcast, but if I did, this is not the same Michael Walsh uh, as I have read books by in the past. So just to clear that up, I definitely have at least told some people off of the podcast, outside of this podcast, that that was the case. And that ends up not being the case, actually. Uh, Michael Walsh is a comic book uh, writer in the case of this work, and he's a co-writer of this book, White Cargo. Uh, Looks like he is a Canadian comic book creator based out of Hamilton, Ontario. But if I look for the Michael Walsh that I'm more familiar with, and we'll just pull him up real quick, we have the very interesting, uh, somewhat of a bomb thrower, The Devil's Pleasure Palace, The Cult of Critical Theory, and The Subversion of the West. Uh, So there's that. I, I wouldn't have said at the time that I read this, that it was my favorite. It was okay. I gave it three out of five stars. It wasn't bad, but it it wasn't my favorite either. Uh, This was published back in 2015, so really before a lot of the hubbub about critical race theory, I read this a number of years ago, a number of years ago. Uh, But he wrote that one. He also wrote another work, uh, no, actually, never mind. Never mind. Yet another Michael Walsh. Wow. Doggies. Apparently, you can't just go off of uh, an author's name. Uh, there are plenty of Michael Walshes in the world. So yet another Michael Walsh wrote Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost, which I thought was very good, actually. I thought it was very interesting talking about how men have to believe that their way of life uh, is more valuable than their life itself, which is to say that their culture and their wives and their children especially, uh, being able to continue on living life, is worth them fighting and dying uh, in battle. Uh, Even when the odds are entirely stacked against them and death is almost certain, men historically, throughout all times and places, fight, even when it's a lost cause, when they sense that their wives and children uh, are in jeopardy, or their way of life for their wives and children is in jeopardy. Uh, But again, (laughs) the Michael Walsh listed on White Cargo, The Forgotten History of Britain's White Slaves in America, is an entirely different Michael Walsh. Uh, I I realized this morning that he is a separate Michael Walsh from the author of the two books uh, previously I had read. 
now I realize live uh, while recording this that they're two different Michael Walsh's, uh, Michael Walsh's even with regards to those two books. So anyway, it, it's uh, crazy, right? Sometimes things can be confusing. And in this case, uh, maybe some people should change their name from Michael Walsh to something else. Uh, also, if you're out there and your name is Michael Walsh uh, and you haven't yet written and published a book, um, please come up with a pen name because some of us are having a hard time keeping it straight. But Don Jordan, Michael Walsh, I don't know <laughs> what their politics are, right? I don't know what their background is. They could be just crazy liberals in the mold of uh, Howard Zinn, radicals who are trying to use history and use the academy and use the education system to pump these pro communism, anti-capitalism, anti-free market uh, ideas into our brains. I don't know that I, I, one way or the other. If in fact the paper copy, the print copy of this book uh, is replete with Howard Zinn references, uh, Howard Zinn being the source, then really do be careful with it. But that said, right, let's put that off to the side for a moment. I didn't feel as though in reading this, either A, it was totally devoid of editorializing and opinion uh, on the one hand, which is more or less ideal unless the person who's editorializing uh, is upfront and honest uh, on, you know, on the front end, disclosing their influences and their beliefs and their worldview. And when they try and sneak it in and then pretend that it's objective, when it really is subjective, it really is their religion, it is their political ideology, it is their personal philosophy, uh, coloring their interpretation of the facts, and they're conflating that with the facts themselves. Uh, that's not bueno, right? Howard Zinn does uh, some of that, but actually I think... Howard Zinn is more upfront and honest about uh, what his influences are than these two guys seem to be, uh, at least in this work. Uh, Howard Zinn is much more um, oily, I would say, uh, much more sly in the way that he exaggerates some things and downplays other things. Uh, he definitely works a lot in just turning up the volume on the parts of the music that he wants you to listen to and turning down the volume on the parts that uh, he doesn't. But he's still playing it. It's still kind of playing. You can sort of hear it if the rest of the room is quiet. But let's just put all of the biases uh, off to the side, all of the political maneuvering uh, ambitions off to the side for a moment, just looking at this on its face. I feel like my worldview is strong enough that I don't need everybody who has ever looked like me, everyone who has ever been given a positive reference by me to only ever have done things that I could be proud of and approve of. 
right? So George Washington crops up a number of times in white cargo, particularly towards the end, as we are getting up to the point where indentured servitude uh, stopped in the colonies. Uh, As that practice of Britain dumping convicts and orphans and political exiles on these shores uh, came to an end, there are two or three, I think, references to George Washington launching an expedition to reclaim some black slaves and also some white indentured servants who had all together run away. Uh, I think it was you know, 20 or so such. And, it, you know, we're not given a lot of details. It's just like a passing reference. But the emphasis in the passing reference seems to be on the fact that, hey, we think George Washington is so great. He wasn't. He was just one of these rich white people from Europe who wanted to oppress people of color and poor white folk and extract the value of their labor. That's all. He didn't really care about human rights and freedom or liberty for anybody except for rich white people, uh, rich white men in particular. You know, that's kind of the flavor that I got from it. And I'm listening and I'm thinking like, huh, boy, that sounds really weird if this is the same Michael Walsh who wrote those other two books, which it turns out that those two other books weren't even written by the same Michael Walsh. But I will get over that. I will be okay. Uh, Now it makes much more sense. You know, and this is part of why I like to not read too much on who the author is prior to reading the book. I want to see what it is that they're trying to present just for its own sake. Uh, Spare me the hype and also the demonization. Just let me consider their thoughts here. But uh, quite frankly, I mean, there's no disputing that black African slaves who were brought to America were in many, many, many cases treated horribly, horrifically. But my position has been for a long time as a Christian who reads his Bible, who has studied God's word, who believes that man is not inherently good, uh, I conclude a few things about that different from the positivist, secular, godless, uh, mainstream opinion, which the majority of Americans uh, are at least given, uh, whether they receive it and hold on to it or something better as another matter. But, But the majority of Americans have received that view of things, especially in recent years, from our public schools. By the way, check out my book, This Is Why We Homeschool, available on paperback or Kindle e-reader, or actually, for that matter, I think pretty much any e-reader that uh, you would prefer. You can find my book online. Just search up, and this is Why We Homeschool by Garrett Ashley Mullet. It's available at Amazon, for instance, for example. But my worldview is that people are not inherently good. People were inherently good in the Garden of Eden. God made Adam and Eve 
And when he surveyed all of his creative endeavors, he said, behold, it was very good. And he didn't just make Adam and Eve like any of the other animals. He made them very special because he made them in his image. And he made them, he created them, not just by speaking them into being. He formed the man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed breath, the breath of life into his nostrils personally. And then the woman he fashioned out of one of Adam's ribs after causing Adam to fall asleep. And again, originally they were very good. But then this thing happens, which you read about from Genesis to Revelation. This thing happens called sin. And sin is breaking God's law. It is disobeying God. It is misusing what it is that he has created, which rightfully belongs to him. It is basically challenging his authority to say, here's how he wants his creation to be managed, uh, stewarded, handled, used. So Adam and Eve's sin, they fall from their very good state. And all of human history, all of humanity ever since, is born with a sinful nature. It affects our DNA. I wouldn't say that racism is in our DNA, but sin, yes, actually. Sin and the effects of sin are very much in our DNA. And modern science talks about this to some extent, not that they know it yet, but stresses and environmental factors and diet can cause our genes to change. It can actually change our genetics, change our DNA. We can mutate based on stresses. And so the stress of sin, in my view, has caused a lot of breakage. And we keep on sinning. Not not only did we sin, but we keep on sinning. And so you get thousands of years, as I hold to a young earth creationist view. God's word needs to be our objective standard of truth and goodness and beauty. And by it, we judge the claims of men, the theories of men, the opinions and actions of men. Well, one thing I read in God's word is that initially a guy by the name of Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers. I read that and I think to myself, yeah, people are awful. Just one generation down from Adam and Eve, you have a brother murdering his brother because the two of them made offerings to the Lord and God accepted Abel's and he didn't accept Cain's. People can be awful. Sin is very sinful. Evil is very evil. But if I believed that man was just an animal, I don't quite know why I would be all worked up about indentured servants or slaves for that matter. I would argue that the extraordinary thing about American history in particular, British history in particular, is the fact that Western civilization, by virtue of the Christian ethic, the Christian worldview, emancipated slaves, outlawed the practice of slavery and taking slaves. When 
for all of human history. I mean, go back to BC, go, go back to thousands of years BC. You have people capturing one another, the strong capturing the weak, the conquerors enslaving the vanquished, and forcing them to do whatever it is that they wanted them to do. Hey, I want you to build this. No. Okay. Never mind. Maybe I will. Hey, I want you to make me some food. No. Okay. Never mind. I'll make you some food. So that's the unextraordinary thing. And it's not a uniquely white problem. It's not a uniquely black problem. It's a human problem. It is a humans who were created good, created in God's image, but now are born with a sinful nature problem. But I look at Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, and meritoriously, he works his way up to being the second most powerful man in Egypt, arguably the world at that point. His brothers come a calling. He's gracious with them. He forgives them. Joseph recognizes that what his brothers meant for evil, God intended for good. And that should teach us something as well. You know, I think it would be very dangerous for us to look at the abuses perpetrated against indentured servants and slaves in our own country's early years, early decades, early centuries. And suppose that the whole thing just needs to be torn down and destroyed because since that was part of it early on, that's all it'll ever be. That's all it ever can be. That is our destiny because that's where we come from. Not so. Not so. I mean, the whole idea of the war for independence from Britain was predicated on the idea that we can reform. Now, it's a little bit of a task, but you can see it. The Enlightenment was not, by and large, a godly revolution in thinking, in worldview, in how we approached ourselves and one another and society and the world. There was a lot of hubris in the Enlightenment. But the Enlightenment and the Renaissance were so closely related to the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation was predicated on the idea that we should not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. By studying God's word, we could know what was good and what pleased God on an individual basis, on a community basis, in our families, in our homes, in our churches, in our states, in our forms of government, in our education system, in our businesses. And so it's a messy thing. But if it wasn't all there was to the story for Joseph personally, that he was sold into slavery, again, by his own brothers, it's not racism, it's just sin. It, it's people being sinful and broken by sin. But that wasn't the end of the story for Joseph. And for many of the indentured servants, not all, but many of them, indentured servitude wasn't the end of the story for them either. Now, this book, at various points, and you've got to be really careful about this. When you're reading a history book, 
or when somebody's telling you a story, you have to be really careful that they don't throw in too many presumably's, surely, probably's, right? You need to put a little asterisk there. And I was just recently talking with my oldest son, Josiah, about family history. After reading this book, most of the way through this book, towards the end, there is this battle, this last battle of the Jacobites trying to put the Stuart heir on the throne, not accepting the Hanoverian King George I. And so I'm talking with my son about how the timing of this battle in 1715, this last battle, as some hold it, or at least a contender for the last battle on British soil, could have been the impetus for the McFarlands coming to America, showing up in Pennsylvania in 1720. And I don't have any direct evidence, but there's a part of me that wants it to be true just so I know what happened there. I don't like the uncertainty. I don't like not knowing. But this is one of the things I was lying awake thinking to myself the other night before I had finished uh, White Cargo. It was about an hour from the end of it. And I'm laying there awake and I'm thinking, man, I need to read the rest of the story and find out because my mind is just like turning this over and over and over and over. What if my McFarland ancestors participated in this battle and then were captured and were told, we won't execute you for high treason against King George I if you agree to being transported to the colonies and serving as an indentured servant for seven years. What if, right? Boy, howdy, how does that change my outlook on where I come from, how we got here, what we're about, what we're like, right? Would that fill in some details in terms of how that family, that side of the family, that family tree branch relates to things and one another and all that? Would all of a sudden that color things in? And the long and short of it is, there's a lot of speculation. However much <clears throat> I might want to know and and understand and be able to say with a certainty, I've researched this out, <clears throat> I've investigated it. Here's what it is. The best service I can render to myself and everyone else is to say, well, I know this, right? I know a battle happened right here. Right then, <clears throat> I know that it's at least likely they would have participated in that battle on the side of the Jacobites. Also, I know that according to Ancestry.com, family trees, they have children being born in Pennsylvania just five short years later. So, I know those two things. Now, here's some guesswork, maybe, just maybe. And, you know, and, and that could be helpful because you start exploring in those directions, sure. But tell me truly, like, suppose that my McFarland ancestors were transported to the Americas as indentured servants, slaves for all purposes, seven years of slavery, and then you're free. Suppose that was the case. Am I limited in 
what I can be or do or accomplish today? Do I need to be angry at Great Britain? If I meet somebody who's British, do I need to be resentful towards them? You know, I I think I can begin to understand maybe a little bit of how people who have ancestors who were slaves have questions, right? You know, how <clears throat> how did it come to be that we were here and why do I not know more? Why is there not more of a record? Why is there not more of a paper trail? And how does this limit me? How does this affect me? Right? I can I can sympathize with those questions. But on the other hand, I would like to tell the folks out there who believe that they are limited that it does not necessarily follow. If your ancestors were great and powerful or if they were of no account whatsoever and we can barely find a trace of them in the records, if we can at all, either way, your life right now is a gift from God. Now, I think it's important to note, and I teased this in yesterday's podcast, that the same human nature which allowed men to justify treating their fellow man as uh, animals 300 years ago, 400 years ago, because they were black or because they were Irish or because they were Scotsmen, because they were Native American, because they were fill-in-the-blank. The same mentality is still with us. And quite frankly, I think that a lot of the campaigning against racism, sexism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is really missing the point. The point is not we need to fix our ideas about race and sex and gender and all this. The point is that we need a savior to save us from our sinful nature, to equip us to be able to treat one another as image bearers of the Almighty. I'm convinced that the racism comes after some kind of a conflict as a effort at filling in blanks. There's some kind of a conflict or there's some kind of a temptation. One of the two. The Scots and the English back and forth, back and forth. And at a certain point, the acts of union happen where Scotland and England and Wales and Ireland are all going to be united in one kingdom, the United Kingdom. That's why we call it the United Kingdom. So they're going to be united. Well, a good chunk of the Scots said, I have no interest in that whatsoever. Our ancestors have been fighting to maintain independence, retain independence, regain independence for hundreds of years. We are a separate and independent people. No. And a lot of those Scots came to America and said, okay, well, we'll start over. A lot of them became explorers, businessmen, scientists. A lot of them, on the other hand, said, you know, it is what it is. If you can't beat them, join them. We'll become even better Englishmen than the English are. That's how we'll win. Would it be right for a Scotsman to look at an Englishman and say, because of what your ancestors did to my ancestors, I don't like you, I don't trust you, and I even hate you. 
And if an opportunity comes up for me to do you harm, I will. That is where racism comes from. And we're talking about white people. But it could be any distinction. It could be any distinction whatsoever. And you don't say, oh, there just shouldn't be any distinctions, or we should just totally destroy one side, and then we would have peace. No. What you should do is you should figure out how we can be made right with God on all sides. Because actually, first and foremost, they didn't sin against us, and we didn't sin against them. We all sinned against a holy and righteous God. See, that's the kicker. It wasn't just slave owners and masters sinning against slaves and indentured servants. I'll shock your socks off. Sometimes those slaves and indentured servants were sinning against their masters. And sometimes they were sinning against each other. But all the way around, the whole lot of them and us too sin against God. My biggest concern, honestly, with a story like this is not that hey, certain parts of this might be true, other parts might be exaggerated or de-emphasized or, you know, there's, a, there's an agenda here that is leftist and communist that I disagree with. My biggest concern is not that. My biggest concern actually is with a lot of the Howard Zinn-like looks at the past, the toppling of statues and whatnot, if we are always so concerned and preoccupied with condemning everybody who came before us, boy, howdy, I think that can blind us to the need to search our own hearts right here and now. If we're always crusading against injustices of centuries past, we can fool ourselves into believing that we are very good people. Oh, I see you toppling that statue of Ulysses S. Grant because once upon a time he issued a proclamation that no Jews were allowed to do business with his armies to sell provisions and whatnot. In fact, they all need to get out of the territory. He apologized later, of course, but we need to topple every statue of Ulysses S. Grant because he was a racist. Yeah, people are complicated. People are messy. And we need Jesus. This is why we needed a Savior. It was true then. It's true now. We're a mixed bag. Was George Washington perfect? Uh, no. But it's a false choice to say he was either perfect or we should demonize him. He was either totally perfect and only ever did correct things or he never did a correct thing. You can do no wrong or you can do no right. Both are very foolish and simple and lazy and dangerous ways to approach history. Now, that isn't to say that there are no lessons about the nature of our country, about the flavor of our history, and even up to the present, some of the attitudes among the ruling class in this country. I say ruling class because very often it is the wealthy the well-connected, those with, with a lot of leisure time, with big businesses, large bank accounts, who make up the ruling class, whether they are sitting in office or they're just funding the accounts of those who are sitting in office. So a whole lot has not really changed, even though it has changed. 
It's been tweaked in some ways. And in other ways, no temptation has seized us but that which is common to man. So that mentality towards indentured servants is still present in the heart of man. It must be present. And it must also find expression, if it's present, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So people still are talking this way about other people. And they're still relating to one another like they did. Maybe not always in this country. We frown on such things. But maybe the attitude is there, and the only thing which has suppressed it over the past couple of centuries was the abundance of Christianity, the revival of Christian sentiment, and as we see that Christian sentiment eroded, well then what? Then how will we treat one another? How will we relate to each other? You know, it's a curious thing because one could read this stuff and one could think, well, Garrett, you know, I don't see anybody getting away with beating their servants or slaves to death anymore. Well, yes, but also have you considered Jeffrey Epstein, for instance, have you considered how at least to my knowledge, not a one of his customers has been arrested. High-profile, high-powered, wealthy, well-connected, not a one of them. Hmm. Have you furthermore considered that a lot of these wealthy, powerful people who have the money to fund projects very often are funding educational projects which teach all of us that we're nothing more than animals? Yeah, so so the get get this. So the solution to hundreds of years of American history where some people were treated like animals is for us to all believe that we're nothing more than animals. Cause that'll definitely improve things. Or wait, no, actually it'll just make us all equally miserable. How about we all believe that we're created in the image of God? And we'll be accountable to him for what we do with what he's given us, what we do with one another. That seems a better idea. You should definitely check out this book. I'm out of time. But it is an interesting read. I think it does go to show that this is not a black problem, a white problem. It's not even necessarily a rich versus poor problem, which I think the authors of this book wanted to present it as. This is a sinful human nature problem. But that's all for now. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.